Why pick one city, one beach, one restaurant, or even one view? With Celebrity Cruises, you can have it all. Explore the best of Europe, the Caribbean, and Alaska with the best premium cruise line. And now get 75% off your second guest, plus bonus savings on select dates with Celebrity Cruises' semi-annual sale. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Offer applies to non-refundable fares and select sailing. Savings vary by stateroom category. Other terms apply. Visit Celebrity.com for details. Ships Registry Malta. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. The following show was recorded before the resignation of New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. The Bowery Boys episode 369, Last Dance at the Hotel Pennsylvania. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers with a little question for you. Greg, what do you think is the most famous phone number in American history? Mm, let's see. 8675309. <laughs> I mean, obviously I love that song, but I was thinking about something a little bit older and think more big band. Could you mean Calling that number in the 1930s would have gotten you connected to one of the largest hotels in New York, the Hotel Pennsylvania, located on 7th Avenue, across the street from Penn Station and Madison Square Garden. That's right. When it was opened in 1919, the hotel was sitting across the street from the original Penn Station. In fact, it was it was specifically designed to match that original McKimmead and White station across the street. But the hotel's claim to fame was as a music venue, one of the greatest dance floors of the big band scene, hosting many of the greatest stars of the swing era, the most popular artists on the radio. And even the hotel's operator was pretty famous too, shaping the world of hospitality in the 20th century. We will be telling the story of this famous hotelier who even lends his name to a Muppet. <laughs> so with all this story that we are about to tell, it must certainly be an official New York landmark, right? Oh, no, it's actually not. Today, the accommodation known as the Hotel Pennsylvania, including the, you know, the restaurants, the ballrooms, all of it sits empty. And talks have been underway for its demolition for nearly 15 years now. So can the hotel be saved? Should it be saved? Will it be saved? Well, before settling down on a particular side here, we think it's important to learn the full story of this singular space in Midtown Manhattan. So shall we head out for a spin on the dance floor? Greg, join us as we get in the mood to tell the story of the historic Hotel Pennsylvania.
I love kicking off a show with some Glenn Miller, Greg. This is a big band show. But of course, the swing scene doesn't really get started here at the hotel until the late 1930s. But the hotel has been there for much longer. So I guess it's that time of the show to ask you, Tom, to situate the listener. The Hotel Pennsylvania is located at 401 7th Avenue. It takes up the entire block between 32nd and 33rd Street along the east side of 7th Avenue there, and it stretches east half a block toward 6th Avenue. It was designed by McKimmead and White, and when it opened in 1919, it was the largest hotel in the world, with a whopping 2,200 rooms, all of them with private bath. And the hotel is named after Pennsylvania Station, which is situated across the street, Mm -hmm. and the railroad which operated that original station, Pennsylvania Railroad. That's right. And Penn Station had been completed and opened in 1910. So it was opened nine years before the hotel opened. In fact, the hotel was conceived of and constructed by the railroad in an attempt to to beautify the neighborhood and, and also to increase the property values. Hmm. I mean, did it in fact beautify the neighborhood? Beautify, beautify might be a bit of a stretch. I'd like to quote from the 1952 book, A Bed for the Night, the story of the wheeling bellboy E.M. Statler and his remarkable hotels by Rufus Jarman. Quote, the Hotel Pennsylvania is a squarish, soot-stained, block-like citadel rising into the heavy gray humidity that shrouds the island of Manhattan. At its feet thrashes the traffic that preys upon the railroad station and the garment center of the world hard by. A soot-stained, squarish, block-like citadel. Yeah, and that was 1952. You know, maybe it just needed a good cleaning at the time. I mean, imagine all the traffic in 1952. But it was certainly lovelier than what had been there before, obviously. Yeah, well, yeah, if we, if we pull back a second, imagine in 1910, okay, when, when Penn Station opened, which was also designed by the, the firm of McKimmead and White, the station was a neoclassical beauty, right? Surrounding it, however, was the Tenderloin. There were warehouses, there were bars, boarding houses, there were other kinds of houses. Of the ill repute variety, I assume. So, yeah, it was pretty tarnished over here. Yeah, and then on top of that, 7th Avenue had been torn up for years due to subway construction. So the, the area was a mess. And so once the station was done, the man who was responsible for the railroad's real estate Thomas Holm, decided to do something with the vacant lot that the railroad also owned, which was right across the street. He thought, why not build a nice hotel there to benefit the station and to hopefully kind of, you know, elevate the entire neighborhood? And it's a natural business decision to build a hotel across the street because, of course, all those long-distance travelers could just hop off the train and right into a hotel that is owned by the railroad. Yeah, it was a convenience. Maybe it would even lure passengers away from competing trains, you know, over at that other station, Grand Central Station. Lure them over to Penn Station. Of course, it could also make money for the railroad. So they planned to build a 1,000-room hotel 
which would then be run by a hotel operator named F.J. Machette. But Machette thought that it actually should be a grander project. I mean, a thousand rooms would be nice, but why not go bigger? And, and so he really pushed the railroad to double the hotel size, which was really daring because then it would be the world's largest hotel. The railroad finally went along with the plan, but they also decided, because it was so big, they decided to bring in another manager to help run the hotel. So they brought in a hotelier and a businessman named Ellsworth Statler, who by the 19-teens was already something of a legend in hotel circles for operating jumbo-sized, oversized hotels in major American cities. His company, the, the Statler New York Hotel Operating Company, would pay an annual rent to the railroad of a million dollars in order to run it, and then he'd get to keep the profits, if there were any. Let's back up for a little bit and hear a bit more about Statler, because we actually haven't talked about him that much on the show, mm -mm. and he's a, a very fascinating 20th century figure. He was probably the most famous owner and manager of hotels in America from the 19-teens through the early 50s. His first name was actually Ellsworth, although he would go by E.M. his whole life. Uh, he was born in 1863, the third of eight children of a German Reformed minister who lived in Somerset County in southwestern Pennsylvania. When Ellsworth was a small boy, his father relocated the family to the small town of Bridgeport, Ohio. And there, little Ellsworth would take a job laboring away at a glassworks factory as a teenager, which he absolutely hated. And at night, he'd go home up to his attic bedroom, looking out the window across the Ohio River to Wheeling, West Virginia, and to the, the site of the McClure House, which was a hotel that hosted, a, at the time, a who's who of anybody who was passing through Wheeling. He would manage to leave the glassworks factory and get a job, a lowly job, at the McClure House and work his way up from bellboy to clerk and then even talking the owners of the hotel in, into letting him experiment with all kinds of daring hotel innovations like selling train tickets in the lobby and, and organizing bowling championships and, <laughs> and improving the <laughs> restaurant and they even let him open up his own lunchroom and pie shop. His approach and these new innovations would make him quite wealthy as a young man. This energy and this openness to experimenting and to sort of scientifically approaching and studying the hotel business. You know, this is the 1870s and 1880s, and everything was about sort of a new scientific approach to running businesses. And so he was, he was doing this to the hotel business here and studying for hours, you know, writing long papers about how the hotel should brew its coffee and how it could be improved and things like that. But it would actually be because of two World's Fair or World Expos that he became a hotel magnet. The first was Buffalo's Pan-American Exposition of 1901, for which he constructed Statler's Hotel, which was already the world's largest hotel with 2,100 rooms and the capacity to seat 5,000 people. This one had a dining room that could seat 1,200 people. How could he afford something so grandiose? Remember, this was a World's Fair. These were temporary structures. Mm. So there was a lot of, like, plaster going on, a lot of plaster of Paris. You didn't want to, like, push too hard on the walls. He built it pretty cheaply. And anyway, ultimately, that fair was a dud. 
The crowds didn't come. And it's actually only remembered today for having hosted President McKinley, who showed up and was then assassinated there by an anarchist on September 6, 1901. So that was the 1901 World's Fair where he Mm -hmm. had that accommodation. So where was the second fair? That was the St. Louis Expo of 1904. And there he built another hotel, the Inside Inn, which was even larger with 2,257 rooms, much more expensive to construct, $450,000. It was so large that he basically made the hotel one of the fair's attractions. People came just to check out Statler's Hotel. <laughs> and, and he advertised it so much. He filled up his rooms and his restaurants, kept all of his dozens of bellhops busy, and became, because of this hotel, a very rich man. He raked in $300,000 in profits from that fair in 1904. Unfortunately, also, on opening day of the fair, he was racing around, tackling different issues, you know, tinkering with things, and he was inspecting a malfunctioning coffee urn in the kitchen, a 20-gallon coffee urn, which then exploded over him, completely covering him in scalding hot water, and it actually killed one of his employees. He landed in the hospital for six weeks and would be scarred from this for, for the rest of his life. But this was the fair that really made his name and fortune as a hotel operator. Yes, and because of that fortune, then he could go on to construct other very large hotels, including the Statler Hotel in Buffalo in 1907, where he introduced an amazing new concept, okay? One that he'd bring to the Hotel Pennsylvania 12 years later. The concept of a bath with every room. So it actually wasn't common up until this point to have a bathroom in each room? It was unheard of. Hotels, you know, they offered expensive rooms and and suites with private bathrooms. But no large hotel, no hotel chain could claim that every single room had a private bath. It wasn't done. So luxury hotels like the Waldorf Astoria, which had been opened by this time here in New York, you're saying that places like the Waldorf didn't have bathrooms in every room? They obviously had luxurious rooms. They had amazing service. But they also, on top of those, you know, luxury rooms, they also had rooms for, say... You know, the entourage who was traveling with their high-paying guests and the visiting royalty, and chances were that many of those more modest rooms shared baths in the hallway. For one thing, the plumbing was a nightmare to actually Mm -hmm. equip every single guest room with a bathroom. But here in Buffalo in 1907 at Statler's first permanent hotel, he would introduce this concept of every room with a private bath, which would lead to the slogan, a room and a bath for a dollar and a half. And thankfully, hotels have not been the same since. <laughs> and <laughs> guests have been stealing towels ever since. <laughs> the Buffalo Hotel was a big success, and that then allowed him to open up the Statler in Cleveland in 1912, in Detroit in 1915, and in St. Louis in 1917. All of them with huge numbers of rooms, all of which were equipped with private bath. All the rooms had cold drinking water dispensers. There were telephones in every single room and that kind of thing. And also, Greg, he made them affordable so that 
most middle class, upper middle class travelers would be able to afford these amenities, amenities that really had only been available in luxury hotels before. So now it just seems obvious that the Pennsylvania Railroad would turn to this man, Statler, Mm -hmm. to operate its grand hotel across the street from its station. And here's how the New York Times heralded the opening of the Pennsylvania on January 25th, 1919. Headline, World's Biggest Hotel Opens Today. The Pennsylvania with 2,200 rooms and 2,200 baths ready for guests. The incandescent skyline over the heart of New York received a big addition to its candle power last night when on the gloomiest offshoot of Times Square, hundreds of windows were illuminated in the largest tavern in the world, the Hotel Pennsylvania, which has its opening today. Seventh Avenue, which had been practically in the hands of the receiver during years of subway building, began to look again as if it belonged on Manhattan Island. The Hotel Pennsylvania, which has 2,200 rooms and 2,200 baths, is the largest hotel in the world by 200 rooms and 200 baths. The Hotel Pennsylvania will give New York its first experience of Statler Hotel Management and Service. There are 27 floor levels from the lowest sub-basement to the top floor. The first four floors of the hotel are built in a style to harmonize with the massiveness and dignity of the great railroad building. On these floors are the offices, lobbies, dining rooms, cafes, galleries, and most of the public rooms. Above these floors, the structure is cut into by four deep courts, which give light and air to all the rooms. And there are things that didn't make the article. The fact that it was the first hotel to deliver newspapers under every door. Statler had the bottom of the guest doors cut higher to allow papers to easily slide under the door. (laughs) But what really got a lot of press was something called the servidor. Turns out that Statler was really against tipping. He was not a big fan of tipping. He wanted to, like, remove that inconvenience to the guest the expectation that you would have to tip. So they built a sort of door into the guest room door, okay? A smaller door inside that door. A door that could be opened from the inside and a door that could be opened from the hallway with a special key. And so you, as a guest, say you had trousers or suit that needed to be pressed, you could open up your side of the servidor and place it in there and then lock it back up and then ring for the porter and then the porter would come and, and open up his side of the servidor, and there it would be. It was like an interim chamber. Inside the door. The door was convex, so it kind of like bulged out on both sides. Wow. I mean, I suppose they could have just opened up the door and handed it. You know, that would have saved some time. <laughs> but, but he wanted to remove this feeling of obligation to give a tip. You know, I think part of this is because he was designing his hotels for middle-class travelers, business travelers. He was not the Waldorf. And he didn't want to be the Waldorf Astoria because he saw already that, you know, the hotel business was rapidly changing. And it would really change in the 1930s when the Depression hit. But he thought, and I think he was right in this, that he could find more profits, okay, than a luxury hotel by running a hotel geared to middle class and upper middle class travelers. 
if he gave them all of the comforts that they needed at a decent price, and this is the key part, and if he managed to fill up all of his rooms every night. And that was the big thing. He did. The Pennsylvania would have occupancy rates north of 90%. Now, that was marvelous. But I just have to tell you that every time you say the word Statler, and then you say the word Waldorf, Uh I, in my head, immediately am tuned in to The Muppet Show and to those two (laughs) old dudes sitting in the box who are always complaining about things, right? The two Muppets, Statler and Waldorf, they're actually named after these two hotels, because, of course, the Pennsylvania will become the Hotel Statler later. Which I suppose, you know, was a joke that landed in the 1970s. And the two were natural rivals, so I guess that's where that edginess comes from. Yeah. What was that? It's called the medium sketch. The medium sketch? Yeah, it wasn't rare, and it certainly wasn't well done. (laughs) But in 1919, Mm -hmm. when the doors opened on the Hotel Pennsylvania, it was seen as an aesthetic companion to the Grand Pennsylvania Station across the street. Yeah, it was even linked physically. There was a tunnel under the main lobby that connected to the station. And was it profitable for Statler by the 1920s? Yeah, during that first decade, the Roaring Twenties, Things were very profitable at the hotel, which really isn't that obvious because it was also during Prohibition. So dining wasn't really as profitable because you couldn't charge for booze. But Statler managed to keep his hotel 90% occupied, which allowed him to pay the railroad the $1 million annual rent, and he pocketed annual profits of 2 to $3 million a year. On April 16th, 1928, while he was living at the Hotel Pennsylvania, E.M. Statler died of pneumonia at 65 years old. A funeral was held two days later at the hotel. But of course, the real story of the Hotel Pennsylvania going into the 30s and 40s isn't just its innovative revolutionary rooms with bathrooms, but is its contribution to the New York music world. We'll strike up the band at the Hotel Pennsylvania right after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, 
Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Why pick one city, one beach, one restaurant, or even one view? With Celebrity Cruises, you can have it all. Explore the best of Europe, the Caribbean, and Alaska with the best premium cruise line. And now get 75% off your second guest, plus bonus savings on select dates with Celebrity Cruises' semi-annual sale. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Offer applies to non-refundable fares and select sailing. Savings vary by stateroom category. Other terms apply. Visit Celebrity.com for details. Ships Registry Malta. So put the Hotel Pennsylvania in the context of Midtown Manhattan during the 1920s and 30s. So by this time, you had these very upscale hotels that were the center of high society and fashion. The greatest ones situated near entertainment districts like Times Square or areas of great wealth. Okay. So although the Pennsylvania was geared towards you know middle-class travelers of lesser means... It did have some of the same recreational trappings as those trendier hotels. For instance, like the Hotel Astor in the heart of Times Square, which opened in 1904, that had a very famous rooftop garden for a fabulous evening out. Oh yeah, rooftop gardens were, were the rage. And so too did the Hotel Pennsylvania. It was a granite rooftop pavilion, which was open for dinner and dancing to the house orchestra. But here, though, the view is overlooking Old Pennsylvania Station. So imagine how romantic that is. And it was here on a warm summer's night that you can enjoy a lovely dinner and the music of Vincent Lopez and the Hotel Pennsylvania Orchestra. Ah, the jazz age. 1920s, dancing at midnight to a big band. It is the jazz age, although Lopez's band was actually referred to as a sweet band or a society band, which kind of flattened out that newly popular jazz style which was emerging. Mm -hmm. It's kind of square. Lopez was actually born in Brooklyn in 1895. He was of Portuguese descent. And by age 22, he actually had his own dance orchestra. He was a new kind of star because in 1921, the year he began performing at the Hotel Pennsylvania, he had already become a radio star, broadcasting from station WJZ in Newark. Now, radio was extremely new back then, but very quickly became a major craze. The internet of its time. 
and the first time that people across the country could experience the same music. 78 RPM records had been invented, so popular music was then created by the radio, and of course, it created pop stars. And one of the first pop stars was Vincent Lopez and his orchestra. Wow, performing nightly and live. They had big, lavish banquets here on the roof all the time. They had dance pageants and operas and even fashion shows. Fun. One banquet of note that I wanted to mention is from March 10th, 1923. This one intrigued me. It was in honor of newly elected U.S. representative, Fiorella LaGuardia. Mm. And one of the speakers during that banquet uh, was James Weldon Johnson, the executive secretary of the NAACP and who had helped organize the silent parade back in 1917. Here on the rooftop of the Hotel Pennsylvania, he delivered a speech that is considered classic today entitled Our Democracy and the Ballot about the importance of voting for black Americans. Wow. Talking about that in 1923, sounds like a speech that could have been delivered this year. But as the papers of the day did note, quote, Johnson was the only one of his race present among the speakers. Hmm. Now, I wanted to take a slight detour here to discuss the issues of exclusion that would happen to black and Jewish Americans in hotels like the Pennsylvania and actually pretty much most Midtown hotels. At this time, it's just an important backdrop to consider. You know, New York had a Civil Rights Act on the books, very explicit about how hotels and restaurants were not legally allowed to discriminate against customers. But in truth, these places in white society could come up with any number of reasons to reject a guest or to put them in a less quality room or to give them a bad table at a restaurant. And to be clear here, This wasn't like in the South, where there were explicit and blatantly racist policies, the Jim Crow laws. But this was still racist. It was a sort of more subtle form of discrimination. Right. And it was so prevalent that, you know, black New Yorkers began flocking to places eventually like the Hotel Teresa up in Harlem. But I want to make note of this because of what is happening in music at this time, in jazz and big band. Both black and white musicians and band leaders were coming up as major stars at this time, you know, and often the bands would be mixed with black and white players. But places like the Hotel Pennsylvania, who had a lot of out-of-town guests and mostly conservative guests, would often avoid booking bands with black musicians or featured artists. Now, this would change like by the 1950s and 60s, like Duke Ellington played here in the early 60s, mm-hmm. but it does dictate the kind of musical culture here and the stars at the Hotel Pennsylvania would be able to champion. So then jumping forward to the 1930s, prohibition has been repealed. Guests can once again drink openly, be served. I'm assuming then that things really picked up. I'm I'm sure it was a gay, gay old time here at the Hotel Pennsylvania. Oh, yes, Tom. In 1933, in the basement here at the Pennsylvania, was the Mad Hatton Room, uh, which began as a very snooty and drunken destination for New York's cafe society. Let me just read you a remarkable quote from the Brooklyn Daily Eagle from November of 1933. 
Quote, In Hotel Pennsylvania's striking Manhattan room, George Olson and Ethel Chute were making their joint bow to the public and the public consisting of people such as Otto Kahn, Miriam Hopkins, and others of the plebeian set. Hopkins was there with Ernst Lubitsch, her favorite piano player, Irving Berlin and his wife, Bert Lahr, Cole Porter, Grover Whalen, who would like to be the next mayor, Condé Nast, who worries about magazines and things, and Harold Ross, who does likewise, were scattered about with their ladies. The moon, the stars, the stillness of the night have always cast a spell on me. I'm not ashamed to say I'd rather sleep all day. The lights, the fun, the things that can be done that one who needs the sun can see. I'm like a wise old bird whose song you've often heard. Ooh, I'm a night owl. I wake up as soon as the sun goes down. Well, the following year, 1934, another venue within the Hotel Pennsylvania would open and have a greater effect on American music. The room was the Café Rouge, and the sound was swing. It would so define American culture that in the years between 1935 and 1945, there, these years are sometimes called the swing era. And the stage of the Café Rouge became one of the great centers for swing music, featuring the era's biggest stars, from Woody Herman to Tommy and Jimmy Dorsey. So please take us inside, Greg. I want you to take <laughs> us on a little tour of the Café Rouge. I hope you're all, you know, dressed in your weekend finery here. The Café Rouge is a vast space with red walls and red curtains and a ceiling that is 22 feet high, which provided the most sparkling acoustics. It retained the Italian architectural style that the firm of McKim, Mead, and White intended. There was even a marble fountain in the back of the room. And in the middle of the room, against the south wall, was the bandstand and a huge floor for dancers in front of it, surrounded by dozens of tables for drinking and dancing. And then, of course, there were two terraces where guests could sit and people watch, if they liked, throughout the night. The orchestras that played here at the Café Rouge were hired per season, right? So they had residencies of a few months because, of course, then those bands would then go out and tour the country. And then a band performing here could have up to 12 and 20 members with, of course, the star band leader at front and several featured vocalists. And so that's the scene that would greet you at the Café Rouge. And to be clear, the music that they're playing, that this band is playing, is swing. Oh, yeah, swing. This is not as sanitized for white audiences as it had been a decade earlier. The jazzier sound was now hugely popular with younger people who would dance here late into the night. These were all radio stars, big stars, and soon the radio actually came to them. For years, there were live radio broadcasts from NBC and then later CBS, 
The acoustics were so extraordinary that some artists recorded records here, including Artie Shaw. Now, Tom, I'm going to play a little bit of his My Blue Heaven, which was recorded here in the room, Mm -hmm. and you can actually hear the audience chatter from the Café Rouge dance floor. That is so cool. It's like you are transporting us, Greg, back to the Cafe Rouge. It's like we're, we're there with them on the dance floor. Isn't it divine? But the most famous artist who played at the Cafe Rouge and who recorded multiple radio broadcasts was a man named Glenn Miller. Now, Miller was born in Iowa in 1904. He worked his way through several big bands as a trombonist, in the 1920s and early 1930s, collaborating frequently, actually, with his fellow Café Rouge artists, the Dorsey Brothers. But in 1938, he formed a new orchestra and then snagged a recording deal with RCA. And then by the following year, he was one of America's hottest stars. And the biggest recording artist of the early 1940s, with over, get this, Tom, 60 top 10 hits in four years. Wow. Wait, he's like a national recording star. And at the same time, he's still like the the house band leader at the Cafe Rouge. Like he's still performing here regularly. The National Broadcasting Company invites you to listen to Glenn Miller's music. Oh, yeah. He loved playing the Café Rouge. He had four different residencies uh, throughout his career. He even loved staying at the Hotel Pennsylvania. Well, he must have loved his servidor. <laughs> well, in fact, Tom, he loved the Pennsylvania so much that Miller's frequent collaborators, the arranger Jerry Gray and lyricist Carl Sigmund, came up with a musical tribute to the place. The 1940 hit... Pennsylvania 65000. Of course. But can we talk about that? Can we talk about this song for a second? Pennsylvania 65000 is allegedly a phone number, right? The hotel's mm-hmm. phone number. How is that a phone number? How is Pennsylvania 65000 a number, a phone number? Well, before the era of area codes, phone numbers had five digits prefaced by an exchange code or, you know, two letters which corresponded to the numbers on your dial. So in this case, it was the first two letters of Pennsylvania, P for seven and E for three. Okay. In fact, did you know that the number is still in operation today? So if you're on your phone, just pause the show (laughs) and you can go right now to 212-736- 5,000, and you will hear uh, a message which features the song. Wait, is it still... It still goes through to the Hotel Pennsylvania or to whatever... Although the hotel is not open, yes. But that's still the phone number that they were using. Yes. Wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. Imagine, Greg, the days when you actually had to remember phone numbers. I can't remember (laughs) anybody's number. I don't even know yours anymore. Okay, I'm writing a song for yours. But you also mentioned that the song had... A lyricist? It has lyrics? I mean, aside from Pennsylvania 65,000? 
Well, Miller's version was mostly instrumental, but the band frequently performed at the Café Rouge with three sisters on vocals who performed as the Andrews Sisters, who would be famous for their 1941 smash hit, Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy. And the Andrews Sisters also recorded a version of Pennsylvania 65000 with the complete lyrics. Hello, operator. Give me Pennsylvania 65000. Numbers I've got by the dozen Everyone's uncle and cousin But I can't live without buzzing Pennsylvania 65,000 I've got a sweetie I know there Someone who sets me a glow there Gives me the sweetest hello there So it's 1941, it's the beginning of World War II, and here in the U.S., big band music is really getting kind of caught up in the war. It's being associated with the war, right? This is like the patriotic music now. And so are the artists. In early 1942, Glenn Miller played his last engagements at the Café Rouge, then disbanded his orchestra leaving this massive pop music success to form a 50-piece Army Air Force band, which performed and recorded patriotic tunes to lift the spirits of Allied forces. He performed hundreds of times with this band in England, and today is considered one of the most important wartime entertainers ever in American history. On December 15, 1944, a plane carrying Glenn Miller and two other military officers heading to Paris disappeared while flying over the English Channel. The news was announced on Christmas Day. Mentioned in these reports since the flying bomb attack started last June. Major Glenn Miller, the well-known American band leader, is reported missing. He left England by air for Paris nine days ago. Major Glenn Miller came over from the States early this year to direct the American band of the AEF, which has often been heard playing in the Allied Expedition Reporters program of the BBC. For many, his disappearance marks the end of the swing era, as other types of music then will become more prominent in the post-war years, including rhythm and blues and rock and roll. But looking back at the operator of the Hotel Pennsylvania, Statler, who died here at the hotel in 1928. Mm -hmm. uh, how did this affect the operations of the hotel going forward? Well, the company would continue to build massive hotels. They would build a very successful hotel in Washington, the Washington Statler in 1943. And then in the 1950s, there would be new Statler hotels in Los Angeles and Hartford and Dallas. But they would continue running the Hotel Pennsylvania at the same time. Yes. Stick with me, Greg, because this story mm -hmm. gets a little bumpy, okay? In 1948, the Statler Company, which had been just leasing, remember, they were just leasing the Hotel Pennsylvania. They mm -hmm. bought it from the Pennsylvania Railroad for $14.5 million. And then the next year, in 1949, they changed the name from the Hotel Pennsylvania to the Hotel Statler, New York. I assume they did that to, you know, match the other hotels. It's like a branding exercise here to match the other hotels across the country. Exactly. There was the Washington Statler, the Buffalo, the, the Boston Statler. 
Well, but then something really big happened. It rocked the hotel industry in 1954. Statler Hotels, okay, all 17 of them were bought by a rival, Conrad Hilton. Yes, I'm talking about the great-grandfather of Paris Hilton. <laughs> Hilton bought a controlling interest in the chain of, of Statler Hotels for more than $37 million. It was the largest transaction in hotel history. And like that, suddenly, all those Statler Hotels became Hilton's. That included the New York Statler, which in 1958 then would become the Statler Hilton. And it would remain the Statler Hilton until 1979. And what was the vibe like in the 1950s and 60s? I mean, first of all, the big band era is is losing steam mm-hmm. and other other cultural influences are taking place. So how is that being felt at the hotel? Well, you know, I searched a lot of newspaper archives to find anything kind of interesting going on around here. You see lots of articles and notices about various conventions that were taking place there. There was a, mm-hmm. I mean, a gem and mineral show that was taking place in the 1970s. I mean, that's moderately interesting. Uh, there was a bridge bridge tournaments that were being held throughout the 60s and 70s. I mean, in 1960, they added 30,000 square feet of new convention space on the mezzanine level, added to what was already available in the main ballroom, which again points out that in 1960, it was really important that the the hotel catered to the city's convention scene. That was extremely important to the hotel even from the moment it opened. In that book, Bed for the Night, they claimed that one-fourth of Statler Company income in 1949, a typical year, came from convention goers, which gives you, I mean, it gives you an idea of how important that business was and would continue to be to the hotel. They needed all of those convention delegates. Well, and this was a trend that was happening, you know, throughout the city. I mean, for instance, Robert Moses built the New York Coliseum up in Columbus Circle Mm -hmm. for this express purpose of of attracting convention goers and attracting these big events. Yeah, the Coliseum would open in 1956. You know, it was a perfect space for those big shows, auto shows and, you know, giant things like that. But smaller conventions, too, you know, service organizations, Rotarians, you know, business people, business organizations, they would still have their conventions, um, which could be, you know, hundreds of people in hotels. And of course, and and of course, they still do and will today as soon as, you know, things get back to Mm -hmm. normal. But the late 50s and early 60s would be a unusual time to run a hotel like the Pennsylvania, which was directly across from Pennsylvania Station, which wasn't doing as well. Right. Inner city train service, long distance train travel was plummeting. We've talked about that in a number of shows and would cause the the railroad to realize that they could build a new modern station in just a fraction of the space and build more profitable real estate above it, office towers, new Madison Square Garden, etc. In 1963, then, the demolition of the original Penn Station would begin directly across the street from the Hotel Pennsylvania and would continue for several years. And, you know, the new station, today's Penn Station, would open in 1968. And the whole area would naturally suffer from that lack of train travel because many of the establishments around here relied on those passengers for business. 
Absolutely. There would be, you know, I guess a silver lining in the addition of Madison Square Garden and the fact that this new giant arena was being relocated. That would certainly bring in, you know, new people. But yeah, of course, it was impacted by what was happening to the railway. One other change we should mention that occurred during this period to the Hotel Pennsylvania was, you know, there were successive remodelings of the public spaces. So many of those fine, original McKimmead and White designed architectural elements in the lobby, in the grand spaces, in the Cafe Rouge were covered over, you know, the, the lobby in the in the name of modernity, you know, ceilings mm-hmm. were lowered Lights were changed, chandeliers taken down, things that today we see as, I think, sort of aesthetic catastrophes. Mm -hmm. But at the time, we're seen as modernizing and essential to operating a modern business. And then finally, getting back to the confusing story of the name of the hotel, it would operate as the Statler Hilton, right, from 1958 until 1979 when it was sold to the developer William Zeckendorf Jr. The name of the hotel was then changed to the New York Statler. Got that? But it wouldn't stay the New York Statler for very long because a few years later, in 83, Zeckendorf sold the hotel to a collective of investors along with the Penta Hotel chain, which was a hotel chain owned by some European airlines. Their interests specifically involved developing a hotel project that was close-ish to the brand new Javits Center, which was supposed to open soon way over on the west side. Yeah, all the way over on 11th Avenue, which is, as, as anybody who knows who's walked to Hudson Yards, not really that close. No, but their bigger problem is that the Javits Center, its opening was actually delayed until 1986. But they remodeled the hotel anyway and gave it a brand new name, the New York Penta, which is not my favorite incarnation. But the Penta, they spent $20 million on renovations, in fact, including enlarging some of the rooms, which means that it lowered the room count down to 1,705 rooms. Well, in 1991, then, Penta left, and then the Ramada hotel chain was brought in to operate it. And then people called it the Ramada Hotel Pennsylvania. Good grief. How many times did they remodel this place? <laughs> seems like in the post-Statler world, it seems to have been a very difficult place to manage. Yeah, and the owners would do anything to make money here, including in 1995, they took that old ballroom and they converted it into a television studio to make some some revenue here, where many classic 90s reality and talk shows were filmed. What? Tom, including the Sally Jesse Raphael show and the People's Court. No. Judge Wapner was in the Hotel Pennsylvania? Yes. <laughs> well, the Ramada Hotel Pennsylvania, yes. That should be the name of the show, Greg. The Hotel Pennsylvania, from Glenn Miller to Judge Wapner. <laughs> well, um, are you are you a big fan of the uh, People's Court? I used to watch it after school while eating bowls of Golden Grahams. <laughs> 
Well, speaking of fans, in 1997, a company named Vornado Realty Trust blew in and purchased $300 million worth of properties around Madison Square Garden, including the hotel here, in hopes of creating, according to the New York Times that year, quote, New York's next urban theme park after 57th Street and Times Square, unquote. Well, this fit with the times, right? 1997, this is as Times Square is getting cleaned up and sort of Disney-fied. I mean, there's a lot of redevelopment happening, a lot of amusements coming in. So Vornado sweeps in here. And I sensed you were making some some fan puns before. <laughs> yes. Did they have anything to do with fans? What What's your point? What's happening here? The, the Realty Trust is tangentially associated with the company which made the Vornado fans. Although like through corporate mergers and such, it just completely evolved into a real estate investment trust. So obviously then they stopped making fans entirely. And then like in the late 80s, somebody else bought the trademark for the Vornado Air. So they were pretty agile to be able to oscillate from fans (laughs) to real estate. In fact, Tom, I was actually being cooled by the gentle breezes of a Vornado fan while I was working on my notes for this show. (laughs) Amazing. Their lofty plans for the Penn Station Madison Square Garden district here didn't quite roll out how they liked, apparently, because in 2007, then, they unveiled a new plan for a new office tower, which would stand on the spot of the Hotel Pennsylvania. So in 2007, they have this plan to demolish the Hotel Pennsylvania, which was, by the way, like, what, a little over 40 years after the demolition of Pennsylvania Station. So I can imagine that this grand plan would not sit very well with preservationists. It's it's bad symbolism. Naturally, preservationists, headed by the Hotel Pennsylvania Preservation Society, wanted to protect the hotel and used a very potent tool in their arsenal, landmarking. It wasn't landmark? It hadn't been landmarked? It had not been landmarked, so the drive to landmarking, it began here in 2007. But stunningly, the landmarking was rejected. And why? Well, as you had mentioned at the start of the show, there's nothing really exceptional about the exterior. And the interiors were mostly gone. They were severely altered from their originals, you know, for the People's Court for instance. <laughs> for Sally. It's historic, for Sally. And its historical significance was not enough to grant landmarking status on a building of this size. Fortunately, though, that original deal that Vernada was going to build an office tower, that fell through shortly after, so the hotel remained in operation. Now, flash forward to the year 2020, and the governor of New York Andrew Cuomo announces a radical redevelopment of this whole area around Penn Station in a plan called the Empire State Complex, which would create 20 million square feet of mixed-use space and bring several super-tall skyscrapers into this district. And in the process, it would demolish a host of older structures including the original Penn Station powerhouse, which is still standing over on 31st Street. 
In addition, of course, you know, because Vornado owns most of this land, they would join in the action with plans to once again demolish Hotel Pennsylvania and replace it with a skyscraper the size of the Empire State Building. Good grief. This sounds like something Robert Moses would have been pitching back in the 50s. <laughs> well, in fact, uh, Vornado Chairman Stephen Roth did call Cuomo, quote, the master builder of our generation. Ah. And so, on April 1st, 2020, using the pandemic lockdown as a cover, they closed the Hotel Pennsylvania for good. And to this day, it remains closed. Yeah, you can walk around the Hotel Pennsylvania today. I was just there yesterday and peeked in the windows and the revolving door. You can't push the revolving door, but you can look in. It looks like pretty creepy. We're talking kind of like shining level creepy because some of the lights are still on. You can see kind of into the lobby and the back hallways, but there's no going in. There's some maintenance people around making sure everything's okay, but there's no life of a hotel there. And it's just so massive. On 32nd Street, if you look at the the space where the Cafe Rouge used to be, You'll see that it's all bricked up for those uses that you were just talking about, for the TV studio. You can see the arched windows that are now just full of cement blocks. It's, it is pretty heartbreaking. What's the official status today of this Empire State Complex? The the Cuomo plan. Well, we are in a fast moving world here. You know that this is a, we're at present day of the story. And well, Governor Cuomo is in a lot of hot water at the time of recording, so it's unclear how this will affect the entire plan. But I have a feeling that even if these grandiose development ideas fall to the wayside, that the Hotel Pennsylvania still will not be safe. It's not landmarked. It's not a traditional beauty. And it's enormous. Yeah, so then what can anybody do with it? I mean, aside from operating a hotel or demolishing it, it can't just go on like this and sit there as an empty hotel. A lot of preservationists uh, who have joined the battle here to protect it today do see a very obvious idea that's actually contained within the Cuomo plan itself, and that is plans for a brand new hotel that they wanted to construct. So then why not just redevelop and renovate the Hotel Pennsylvania instead, you know, a place that has this storied reputation? And I think you could even use that lack of landmarking to an advantage and perhaps make some changes that bring the hotel into the 21st century, you know, while keeping some of that glamorous luster of the past. To me personally... Working with the present architecture just makes more logical sense. But then again, you know, I don't have a billion dollars. So this debate continues. This this is a story that's still happening, folks. Yes. So is the historical significance of the Hotel Pennsylvania enough to save it? Is this truly the last dance at the Hotel Pennsylvania? Well, for more information and glorious images of the heyday of the Hotel Pennsylvania, visit our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com. 
In addition, you can find us on social media at Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter. And special for this show, you can also find us on Spotify. I will be posting on our website the official Spotify playlist of this particular episode, The Last Dance at the Hotel Pennsylvania, featuring all of the music that you heard on the show and much more. In addition, the website will also have a listing of all the songs that you heard today on the show. And on our website, on the post for today's show, you can add your voice to the conversation about what should happen here at the Hotel Pennsylvania. We'd love to hear your thoughts. A huge thank you to those who have joined us on patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Our patrons are the reason that we have the show and that we're able to dedicate all of our time to making the Bowery Boys. There wouldn't be a Bowery Boys without our patrons. We have ads, but it's really our patrons who, who supply us with most of what we need to make the show our jobs. So thank you so much for your support. Plus, of course, there are audio extras that are available only to our patrons, including the Bowery Boys Takeout and the Bowery Boys Movie Club. So thank you so much for your continued support, patrons. And thank you, if you're not a patron yet, for considering heading over and joining us. Also, a quick note that the Bowery Boys walks, walking tours are back in the streets. We're super excited to be able to be offering socially distant, masked, Uh, but vaccinated, walks around the city. Our gods are all vaccinated. Everybody's happy. And we're so excited to be able to once again show people around Central Park, Fifth Avenue, Washington Square, Lower East Side, and more. Head over to BoweryBoysWalks.com to join other history enthusiasts in the streets of old New York. So thank you for joining us. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Why pick one city, one beach, one restaurant, or even one view? With Celebrity Cruises, you can have it all. Explore the best of Europe, the Caribbean, and Alaska with the best premium cruise line. And now get 75% off your second guest, plus bonus savings on select dates with Celebrity Cruises' semi-annual sale. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Offer applies to non-refundable fares and select sailing. Savings vary by stateroom category. Other terms apply. Visit Celebrity.com for details. Ships Registry Malta.